Well, here we are in what we are told now is our post-pandemic new normal. Imagine you've heard those words a good number of times, the new normal. And uh, it is a new experience for very, very many people in a variety of ways. Uh, sadly for some, it meant the loss of their businesses during the COVID crisis. Others, it meant the loss of their jobs. Very sadly, for others, it meant the loss of loved ones. For those whose businesses survived and who have kept their jobs, the new normal is new because their working practices have very significantly changed. Prior to COVID, uh, two of my daughters worked Monday to Friday in an office. Uh, now, uh, one of them will go into the office most once a week. The rest of the time, she works from home. And the other daughter, who's 52 years of age, has just decided to retire. So, and her younger daughter, who's still working, is green with envy. So there's the new normal for a lot of, a lot of people. But you know, it struck me thinking back that the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, they were faced very much with a very real new normal. They had gone through the trauma of seeing their master crucified. Then the distress of seeing him well and truly dead and buried. And then in the days immediately following his resurrection, there was great confusion and uncertainty among them. And then that gave way to great elation as he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. So you can well imagine that these disciples had gone through a real roller coaster of emotions over a matter of a few days, in fact. And then, for the next 40 days, he would appear to them different times in different places and assure them and demonstrate to them that once again he truly was risen from the dead. And so the disciples now are living in what was really for them a very real new normal. In fact, on the 40th day, he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany. And I am absolutely convinced that these disciples, as they went with him, must have been thinking again and again, well, what now? What's all this going to lead to now? Uh, What can we expect And so therefore, they it's not at all surprising that when they gather around him at Bethany, they ask him what I am going to call a very narrow-minded question. A very narrow-minded question. This is the disciples' question. Lord, are you at this time going to restore 
the kingdom to Israel. Lord, are you going at this time to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, it's not such a daft question. I didn't say it was a daft question. It isn't. Because these disciples may well have had in mind that well-known Old Testament verse about the increase of God's kingdom and his government and peace of which there will be no end. He will reign on the throne of David over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So his disciples could well expect that there was going to come a remarkable restoration of the kingdom, of the government of God over the people. And surely you could well imagine that the the disciples would think there can be no better time to do it or to start it than now. The Lord Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Here's a man who's overcome death and demonstrated it powerfully, remarkably. They must have been thinking to themselves, who and what can stand in his way? If death can't conquer him, then nobody can. Surely now would be the time for the Lord Jesus to establish himself as king and to start kicking out the Romans and to start restoring again the kingdom, the empire, as it used to be in the days of David and Solomon, right up to the river Euphrates, right the way down to the border with Egypt, right from the the Mediterranean Sea, cross the other side of Jordan, and pushing on toward the Persian Gulf. Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom? And at this time, you're going to start now. Their attitude was that what a a blessing it would be uh, for our nation, the nation of Israel, and then, of course, for them themselves. Wonderful, fantastic. You can imagine them saying, Lord, bring it on. If this is the new normal, we're all for it. Let's get going. But Jesus is fighting. Because he says to them, it's not for you to know the times and the dates the Father has set by his own authority. He is saying to them, the future new normal that you are hoping for is not actually directly for you to decide. What time these things happen is not for you to decide. These things are in my Father's hand. They have been set by him. The plan is his. The future is in God's hands. And that reminded me of the utter futility of people trying to predict the future even with all their fancy astrological charts and reading of palms and feeling bumps on people's heads and all the rest of it, how utterly ridiculous. As it says both in Proverbs and James, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Or again, no one knows. What is coming 
And who can tell what will happen after them? You see, the disciples were hoping that Jesus was going to unfold to them an amazing plan that would restore the kingdom of Israel. They thought there was going to be a new age for Israel. They would have a renewed, powerful nation that would be a great benefit and blessing to the people of Israel and themselves in particular. I'm convinced that that's what the disciples thought would be or hoped would be their new norm. But Jesus said, it isn't going to be like that at all. And Jesus set before them his worldwide vision. Jesus set before them his worldwide vision. Just remember the question that the disciples asked Jesus. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The Lord's reply, if you want it in a simple word, is no. Are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? Jesus says, no. But what he does say is this. I'm not, but you are. Because that's what he says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on. You and you will be my witnesses. This work of restoration of the kingdom, I'm going to be putting in your hands. You are the ones who's going to carry this great work forward. Although, of course, Jesus, as we know, will oversee it and we'll see him involved a bit later. But basically, he's saying, I'm putting this work of the restoration of the kingdom and the responsibility for it and the opportunity for you to serve in it, I'm putting it in your hands. Hands, it's you. They ask the question, Lord, are you going to restore it? He comes back and says, you are going to be filled. The Holy Spirit's coming on you. And you are going to be the people that are going to do the work. And notice this. It was not just for the little nation of Israel. Sandwiched as it was between the Mediterranean and the River Jordan, between Galilee and Beersheba, that little block like that in the Middle East. He says, yes, it's going to start there. It'll start with you in Jerusalem, but then you'll spread it out into Judea, and then you'll go to the despised Samaritans, and then from then on, as the ages unfold, you're going to go further and further till it's reached the whole of the ends of the world. That's why I say the disciples asked a narrow-minded question. They could only think of Israel and themselves and that little block. Jesus says, forget it. This is going worldwide. That's where this is going. And you are going to have the privilege and the opportunity to serve and help me to do it. See, what Jesus was about was he was about reconciling to himself all things on earth and in heaven. 
He is about reconciling people from all over the world, reconciling them together, reconciling them together with the angels and the archangels, reconciling them together with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit in a great fellowship of glory forever and ever and ever. Jesus says, now that's the restoration I'm talking about. That's the kind of restoration that I'm interested in. It's the kind of restoration that results in a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, every tribe and people and language all together standing before the throne in front of the Lamb with all the angels standing around the throne, all the elders and all the four living creatures all worshipping God together in glory and there forever. And he says to the disciples, now that's the vision I want you to get a grip of because that's what you're going to be a vital part of. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to carry this great work forward. And that's why Jesus had said to them on the night in which he was betrayed at the Last Supper, he said to them, the reason, he was explaining to them the reason why the ascension was essential that it had to happen. He said, and very truly I tell you, I tell you all who have faith in me, you will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things because I am going to the Father. Jesus had been doing great things. But then he says to the disciples, I am going to the Father in order to leave you to do even greater things, to reach more people, to go further to spread the gospel all over the world. And today, if you are a Christian, if I'm a Christian, we are part now of this greater work. This greater work of restoring fallen mankind to fellowship with is God and Creator, Saviour and Judge. And that's the vision that Jesus set before his disciples. I want to encourage you, those of you particularly who know the Lord as your Saviour, beware of entertaining too narrow a view of the work of God. It's not just about Loughborough or the Hollywell Estate or about your Christian Union. It's not just about Leicestershire. It's not just about England or the United Kingdom. If you're a Christian, you're involved in a worldwide vision of restoration for God. That's what you're involved in. And it's vital that if you and I Christians that we keep this glorious eternal purpose and perspective in view. Now this isn't something that God uh, calls us to do that's unique. Abraham had this view. Because even though he was wandering about the land of Canaan from place to place, settling down here, settling down there. 
The fact of the matter is that all the while he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. All the while he lived on this earth, he had heaven in mind. He knew that's where he was going. And when God said to him, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, he took that to heart, although he struggled with it at times, as we know. Nevertheless, he took it to heart. And that was his great vision, that ultimately all the nations of the earth would be blessed and he with them would end up in the city of God in glory. That's the view we need to keep hold of. That as Christian people, we're about a glorious restoration work. A restoration work of people who don't know God, of people who are presently strangers to God on their way to death and to hell and to start restoring them back to a knowledge and fellowship of their creator. That's the great work that we're involved in. Until they with us, a completely restored humanity, are joined together in a new heavens and a new earth, a new world of righteousness and glory and joy and peace and blessing. Have you got that vision? Some of you may be Sunday school teachers. When you gather the little ones around you, is that your vision for them? By bringing them to a God and to glory. If you're helping the ladies' meeting or the men's meeting, or perhaps you're involved in the work in the open air, supporting missionaries, This is the work we're involved in. Restoring fallen humanity back to the God who made it and helping to bring them to eternal glory. That's the worldwide vision that Jesus commended to his disciples. And after he'd said this to them, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. That was a kind of a visible, personal confirmation of the new role, the new normal that he had now committed to them and for them. And so he gave his own special endowment of grace upon them. He blessed them. And then as he stood there with his hands raised over them, and bless them, they were then given the vision of the Lord's personal, sorry, not the vision, his visual, visual ascension. While they were, while he was blessing them, he left them. and was taken up into heaven. 
He didn't just turn around and walk away. He didn't simply disappear. But he actually started to lift off physically in front of them off the ground. And so they stood there. And they watched him go in. And he went higher and higher and further. And as he did so, he was getting smaller and smaller and smaller until he was a little tiny dot. And he disappeared into the clouds. Do you mind me saying they were gobsmacked? Wouldn't you be? They'd never seen anything like it. Never heard anything like it. Absolutely, utterly astounding. They couldn't take their attention off it. And even when he'd gone, they couldn't stop gazing up there as he went out of their sight. And not just into the clouds, but beyond and out through space and into glory itself until he sat down at the right hand of his father, the majesty on high. Absolutely and utterly astonishing. And it was all within their full view. And so they kept on looking up intently as he arrived in glory. It was the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus had mentioned. Well, the prayer that Jesus had said in John 17 at the Last Supper when he prayed, Father, Will you glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began? And as you arrived back in glory, the answer was yes. He returned to the glory that he'd had with the Father before he came down to earth. And there he sat and continues to sit until all his enemies have been made his footstool, reigning and ruling over all forevermore. Amazing. And as these disciples continued to stand there, open-mouthed, gazing up into heaven, two men suddenly stood by them in white, and said to them, men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking into the sky? Well, you'd think that was a bit of a strange question to ask. You know, they'd just seen this, the Saviour disappear into the sky. And they say, why are you standing here still looking? Well, they, they couldn't stop looking. They were so astounded. They were utterly astonished. But anyway, they asked them the question, why are you still standing here looking into the sky? And then they gave them the answer. Look, this same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go 
into heaven. This one who's gone now to reign and to rule in glory is one day going to come back again. And every eye will see him, yours included. And the result was they worshipped him. They worshipped him. What a glorious experience. What an amazing sight. What a remarkable thing. And they worshipped him. And so should we. So should you. So should I. Here he is, the living saviour. Ascended to glory, given a name that is above every name, so that every name in heaven and earth, under the earth everywhere, should bow to him, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is he your Lord? Is he your Saviour? Do you worship him? See the one we focus on when we sing our hymns and we're led in prayer. When we're on our own and we open our Bibles and seek to pray to him. You see the one we worship. And we ought to worship him, you know, because as ascended Lord, his ascension guarantees ours. Because the Lord, when he does return, will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Do you believe in your ascension? No wonder the Apostle Paul, when he wrote those words to the church in Thessalonica, said, therefore, encourage one another with these words. I hope these words are encouraging you tonight. Dear friends, make sure this is your Saviour, your ascended Lord. Now, what was the result then of the ascension on the disciples? Well, the result of the ascension on them was the disciples' disciples' proclamation. We read the disciples returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Six weeks earlier, before the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, the idea of him leaving them filled them with horror. That was the last thing they wanted, was that he should go away and leave them. They were really very confused about it. Lord, we don't know where you're going and we don't know the way, says uh, Thomas to Jesus on behalf of all the others. But now... Having gone away, the disciples are no longer sad and confused and distressed. They are no longer downcast at his departure, but they are thrilled. They are thrilled with his exaltation. They are overjoyed with his ascension. They are absolutely thrilled to bits with the anticipation of the worldwide work of vision that the Lord Jesus Christ has put in their hands. 
And they were able to be so full of joy because they were assured of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had said to them at the Last Supper, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's going to be for your blessing that I'm going because as I go, he's coming. As Jesus ascended in victory, the Holy Spirit then came down just a few days later with great and divine ability. He came with his gifts, his gifts to men to enable these disciples to fulfill this amazing restoration work that Jesus had put into their hands. And consequently, the disciples full of joy went out and preached everywhere. Once the Holy Spirit had come, invested them with divine ability, they went out and preached everywhere. Wonderful. They did so joyfully and enthusiastically. And that's, you know, if you and I are Christians, we ought to be something like that at least, shouldn't we? We ought to be thrilled to bits that our Saviour is reigning in glory, that he's sitting there interceding for us, caring for us, watching watching over us and supplying us with all we need for all that he calls us to do. What an amazing privilege and joy. We didn't see him go, but we know he's there. And we know he's coming again to receive us to himself. And so we can joyfully be confident that all that we need to do the work for which he has called us, he will Supply. So if you're a Sunday school teacher, it will supply you with what you need to be a Sunday school teacher. A leader in the church. A worker in the CU. A witness to your neighbours. A helper to the needy. He'll supply by his spirit, through his presence, just what you and I need for the work to which he's called us. So therefore, the disciples could go on and proclaim everywhere with joy and thanksgiving. And why could they be so confident and joyful? Well, because they had something else. They had the risen, ascended towards they had a risen Lord's participation because we read finally the Lord worked with them. The Lord, yes, he's in heaven but he's working with them by the presence and power of his spirit here on earth. The Lord worked with them and confirmed his words by signs that accompanied it. What happened? 
as they went out with joy and enthusiasm, confident in the Lord, helped, empowered by the Holy Spirit. What happened as they went out to fulfilling this mission, this witness? What happened? Souls got saved. Would you believe less than a fortnight after the ascension, 3,000 people got saved on one day? Remarkable. There's a sign that the Lord's hand was working with them, that his presence was there. And then it wasn't bit late, all that long later that there was then another 2,000, so there were 5,000 of them by now. And then they started going out, all places. And that work continued to go on and on and on. Souls were saved, people were healed, miracles were performed, churches were established. And all that in spite of severe persecution and opposition. You could be put to death for denying that the emperor in Rome was a god. And yet... In spite of that, they went out proclaiming Jesus is Saviour and He is Lord. And the Lord confirmed it with signs and power. So the news of the ascended living Lord and Saviour God has been spreading all around the world ever since. And it still is today. And he continues to confirm his word and give us signs that he is working with his people. Souls are still being saved. And lives are being transformed. And it's our joy and our privilege to be part of that great, amazing and wonderful worldwide work. I want to to encourage you to long for and to pray to see more signs of the Lord working with us. Don't we need that? in our lives, in our churches, in our communities, in our nation, around this world. Lord, we know you are with us, but show us more of your presence and your power as we seek to work for you in this desperately needed land of ours. Let's encourage one another to pray for a greater sense of the joy of knowing this risen and ascended Saviour. Let's stop being so miserable as we so often seem to be. I know it's British to be miserable. You know, rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. Oh, I'm very joyful inside. Let's show it. For goodness sake. And let's be joyful as we spread the word. We've got great news to spread. 
And as we do so, let's look up to him and let's look forward to his coming when we shall be forever with the Lord.